conductive wire And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is Back. We have reached episode 250. I don't know how or when this happened, really. It's been a long five-ish years, apparently. But today I am joined by Jacob Tender and Mike Comite to talk about Alien. Guys, how are you doing? Not too shabby. Doing great. Thanks for having us on and congrats on 250. It's a milestone. You did it. <laughs> Somehow. It's kind of a blur. <laughs> it, it makes me feel so inadequate as a podcaster or I guess a, a semi-retired podcaster because we've been running our shows for about the same amount of time. And I feel like we, we end up appearing on a lot of your anniversary shows, which yes. doesn't help my ego because <laughs> <laughs> you just keep going and keep going. And it's incredible. I don't I don't know how you do it. I'll say that every time. But yeah, it's it's amazing. So congrats. Thank you. Well, when I figure out how I do it, I'll let you know. Yeah, I'm waiting for that book. <laughs> that might take some time. Just keep recording by Deanna Chapman. <laughs> so... We were discussing what would be a good topic, and because I had not seen Alien before when we initially started discussing this, which was probably, I don't know, 30 episodes ago, I decided that I should watch something that was like this big movie event sort of thing that has stood up to the test of time. So for you guys, what's been your experience with this movie? Jake, you want to go first? Sure. I feel like your yeah. story, your background is much more storied than mine. Mine is. I don't. I mean, I don't know if it's a good story, but I. I don't know. I found this movie. I think when I was probably in like fourth or fifth grade for the first time, and I don't know. It's just stuck with me. Mm -hmm. I mean, anybody who listens to Mike and I's show knows that I like Star Wars, but anybody who listens to Mike and I's other show knows that I I really like Alien as well, and I'd be hard pressed to choose between alien or star wars like it's really that close for me and i i just love this movie and i like a lot of the sequels as well and i'm very tied into into that universe but this one in particular is just so masterfully made and it's incredible it's incredible to understand how it got to this that to that point because the production for this movie was so fraught and maybe we'll get into that later and we can discuss what I can remember of that. But yeah, I, I don't know. I've watched this movie probably 20 or so times. I've definitely watched it once a year for the past four or five years. Yeah. It's, it's just something I keep coming back to. And I'm always really excited when a friend of mine tells me that they have not seen the movie because it gives me an opportunity to see it again through their eyes. I did that last year with my my friend Jared, who had not seen any of them. So we did the whole quadrilogy, as it were. And that was really fun. It, this movie is a lot like Star Wars, and its history is really tied to Star Wars. And they they share the sort of lived-in sci-fi world that I think I'm really drawn to. Um, it's not, it doesn't have as much fantasy in it. it is, it's very grounded. Like, it feels like this is, is, is a real thing. I mean, Aliens... Alien is really just a movie about truckers in space. And I love that. It's it's such a well-made movie and the design and the creature design and everything about it. I, I think it really just it it was so much was put into it 
that allows it to hold up today. And that's really rare. I think if you watch a lot of other science fiction from that time, Star Wars aside, this is the one that really stands out. And so it's really, it stuck with me for a, a really long time. And I'm stoked that you finally watched it, what, last year for the first time, Deanna? I think it was last year, maybe earlier this year. I'll have to like check Letterboxd somehow and see when I watched it. But I did rewatch it last night and I decided to watch the director's cut just to kind of see. And I know they're roughly the same in length, so it didn't seem to make too much of a difference. But Mike, what's your experience with this movie? In the mid 90s, when I was probably like four, five, six the, the sequel to Alien, which we're talking about today, Aliens came out in 1986. And for some reason in the mid 90s, like early to mid 90s, the toys had a crazy resurgence. Um, it was pre-Alien 3. Um, it, it was right around Alien 3, actually, probably, I think about it. But it, it was this weird moment where Aliens, you know, the sequel had a crazy resurgence in, in terms of like merchandising. And my one of my best friends had all of the alien toys and all the alien variants that never made it into the movie. And I had never seen the movie. It was, you know, it was rated R, right? Like, so you, we just couldn't watch it as kids in my house. Um, but I had all the toys and I thought it was really cool. And eventually I, I would collect my own toys. And, you know, I, they were just a toy thing for me for the longest time. Just the xenomorphs and the various, the variants on the xenomorph. And eventually, um, one day I was homesick from school and daytime TV is really boring when you're a kid, um, it, of, a, of a certain age, just because like you can't watch, um, like Jerry Springer is not super interesting. It's like, and like Nick Jr. is like too young for you or whatever. <laughs> like, and so I was just flipping through like the other cable networks and this movie was on and I, I know we're not talking about aliens, but this is this was my introduction to the franchise is just this is it's the end of aliens and um you know I, i'm just from my point of view i'm just watching two characters talking on screen and suddenly like one of them looks really scared and then a giant spike pierces his chest and rips him in half and that was on cable tv when i was a kid and that traumatized me uh, mostly for life i'm still to this day you know 30 years later pretty much um, thinking about that all the time. So that was my introduction to the Aliens franchise. And then uh, I saw Alien for the first time when I was like 25. So this is like 20 years after that moment, I finally saw the first Alien film during uh, one of the big hurricanes in New York City when right before we like lost power and everything in our place. Um, but yeah, it was a spooky atmosphere and we were like, let's watch a spooky movie and it was Alien. And uh, I don't know much about the production like Jake does, but... It definitely uh, rocked my world as a kid, and I have nothing but the most uh, crazy respect and excitement for it uh, as far as like a franchise goes. And now, Deanna, when, when we started talking about doing this episode and you said you had never seen it before, we gave you some pretty clear instructions on how to watch it. Mm -hmm. Can you maybe tell the listeners what you did to prepare to watch this movie? I don't think I did anything, really. Oh, come on. We t I, if I recall correctly, and Mike, you can back me up because you were on that text thread. I think we told you to shut the lights off, put your phone on silent and face down and just watch it. Oh, yes. That I did do the first time, not the second okay. time. <laughs> yeah. I think that's so important because so much of this movie is about sort of the atmosphere and the ambiance. And this is not your, your typical like science fiction space horror. You know, it's, it's not things that are, are 
it's not a ton of action that ha- that comes more in aliens but in alien it's a lot of quiet hallways yes and you know sudden appearances and a lot of stuff honestly that's left off screen to leave you imagining what's happening and at first i thought i was going to hate that because when something is a slow build it really needs to pay off for me to end up enjoying it but i did find the exact date so the first time i watched this was november 21st 2020 so very recently (laughs) you know and for a movie that's been around so long for me it was just one of those things where growing up my parents watched a lot of like drama and thriller movies so science fiction wasn't like a huge part of what i watched as a kid i had probably seen like the Star Wars prequels at some point and gone back and watched the original trilogy. But it wasn't until I just kind of started watching stuff on my own and, you know, like digging into authors like Neil Gaiman and Stephen King that I really started watching more genres of movies in general. So with this being such a big science fiction movie, it didn't even really cross my path until more recently, even though I knew it existed. Yeah, and do you think that's in part to the prequel movies for Alien, Prometheus and Covenant? Like, I, I just wonder how, like, how it actually came across your radar. Like, what was the thing that prompted you to even have an interest in this thing? Honestly, I ended up buying like this grab bag of pins from Fright Rags, I think, and in the pins was the Alien Egg pin. And, you know, I put it up on, I have this cork board next to my desk with like all my enamel pins and stuff stuck on them. So I put it up. So it was like this constant reminder, like, hey, you should finally watch this thing. And, you know, following clothing companies like Fright Rags, they've released like alien stuff and whatnot. So I would get like emails and it was just kind of because I ended up getting into horror, actually, that this kind of came across my radar more. That's cool. Like, I, I love that you brought up the figures because those, 90, those 90s figures by Kenner were so crazy. They just came up with whatever they wanted to. There were no rules. It was just like, we want a, a rhino alien. Yeah. Sure. I mean, <laughs> my favorite was, um, I mean, they made a flying queen alien. I think a lot of it came from the comic lore around that time because Alien 3, I was just looking it up, was 1992. And I was probably playing with these figures in like 93, 94, 95. So it must have been merchandising on the tail of Alien 3. But there was nothing about this franchise that included those uh, unless you count the comics and whatever. And I do remember the the action figures came with little comics. like they, But they fleshed out a lot of the Marines. Like I knew who Corporal Hicks was by name. And he was my favorite. I knew he was my favorite character. I knew he had a rocket launcher, but I'd never seen a movie with him in it. And they came with these character cards and a lot of the like Bishop looked nothing like he did in the movie. Bishop was like a he looked like a cyborg. And that, I think, is just because the the people who designed these toys had nothing to do with the films, really. They knew what the xenomorphs looked like, but they were just like from a character perspective, like Hicks did not look like what he looked like on his character card. And Bishop had like, he just had metal plates all over him and sunglasses on, I think. they just, I think they heard Android and thought Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator and kind of built this guy. Apone was a huge character. They all, had, they were very Ninja Turtles out. Like they had their own individual weapons. Like Apone had these like grenades that he would sling with his hands. Like it, uh, there was a scorpion alien, which really just looked like a regular xenomorph, but it had like a more pointy tail, I guess. 
the gorilla alien had like, you know, shorter legs and longer arms and like a wider head, I guess. Snake alien was like, it looked like a giant centipede. The flying queen was my favorite. It was like this big translucent blue queen alien with these huge wings on it that would flap if you pressed a button. I didn't own any, most of these. I, I owned like one or two of the figures, but it was my friend's house that had them all that I would get to play with them at. But yeah, I just remember like when I finally did start seeing these movies and was like, wait, there's no gorilla alien. There's no scorpion <laughs> alien. There's no snake alien. It was very like, oh, this is, I realized I had been marketed to and, you know, Kenner won this round. I mean, I won too in a way. I got to play with them, but you know. NECA has actually kind of brought back this idea. So there is like a, there are like rhino xenomorph variants that they sell and they're way bigger than the ones that were out in the 90s and they're super detailed and they're really cool. Um, I, I just love that. Like, it doesn't have to be in the movie for it to be really awesome. And this, the sort of '90s wave of toys is coming back. Like, I saw um, Beast Wars is making a return. I think they're actually making a Beast Wars movie. They are. Yeah, I saw that. And that just takes me back to like, you know, the Street Sharks of our youth. I I can't have Street Sharks come back. I won't. I won't <laughs> accept it. I won't tolerate it. I come won't on, stand man. Sharks for it. with jorts. That's good stuff. <laughs> and rollerblades. They had inline <laughs> skates. That was my favorite one. What was I like? I, I think the wor- the weirdest part about the merchandise was that, like, as a kid, you would not fully understand what these things were about. You like, I knew the lore around uh, face huggers. Like, I knew I, somehow the word face hugger, you know, came into my periphery and like my lexicon, and like I knew that they jumped on your face and. But I didn't understand like what was happening. Like, why was there a gorilla alien? Why was there a scorpion alien? Because that idea is toyed with an alien three with the idea that a xenomorph can adapt to whatever life form, I guess it, it, the face hugger mates with or whatever. Um, and I, that's just not something that you understand as a kid. You just think there's like a gorilla alien and you're not actually thinking about a gorilla being attacked by a face hugger. And, you know, I, I think when I did find out about the infamous scene in alien, which is the movie we're talking about, <laughs> not any of this other stuff, but like, you know, I, I, like my mother described it to me. She saw Alien in theaters as a young woman and she spoke of the infamous chest bursting scene and said that everyone in the theater screamed at that point in the movie. And I just like, when I, when I heard her saying that, I like, Oh, that's what happens when a face hugger jumps onto you. Like it puts something inside of, and like this, all this stuff that you don't understand as a kid, all like the subtext of this movie, uh, it all becomes much more apparent once once you understand where all this stuff comes from and it's not just toys. Yeah, it's really become a much bigger thing now, like with the subsequent movies and then the prequels, like the lore has been built up pretty, pretty steadily in good ways and in bad, um, depending on who you talk to, I guess. Some people really hate Alien 3 and Alien 4, and I just, I love Alien 3, and I hate Alien 4. I think Alien 4 is probably the one that has the most consensus. <laughs> it's a pretty bad movie, but then the the prequels bring in so much more in, like, the, the genesis of not only the xenomorphs, but also mankind, and it gets pretty lofty and very Ridley Scott very fast. Um, but this one is a lot more straightforward. I think, like, the plot of this movie is is very simple, and there's a lot of subtext to it, which I think is pretty poignant, especially even now with like worker exploitation. But at the core of it, it's really just a movie about a parasite that gets on board and then ends up killing everybody. And that simplicity makes it timeless. It's so easy to know what's going on. There's not, it's not like star Wars where 
there's an empire and a rebellion and you have to understand like this conflict between all of these people. You just know that there's this crew of space truckers who get woken up from cryosleep early and end up bringing this thing on board, which tears them apart. It's, it's so nihilistic. It, it's, it's amazing. Like, it, like, like you said, with Star Wars, you have a good side and a bad side. And you can try to understand the bad guys, like the Empire's morals or, or like their point of view. And certainly in a lot of the Star Wars expanded universe, like they do go into the Empire side of things and try to help you empathize with some of the people that participate in that and how it's perceived by people who support the Empire. And then you have the Rebellion and or the Republic or whoever the, the, the protagonists are. And you, you empathize with these, these groups regardless of whether they're good or bad. With Alien, I, I even have a hard time empathizing with the good guys sometimes, the, you know, your, your protagonists. It's, it's purely survival in this. And that's all there really is to understand about motivations and whatever. It's, it's just a, on both sides too, right? Yeah, exactly. Like we were talking about this the other day. Like it's survival of the crew. Yes. It's really the only motivation for the xenomorph itself. Its only goal is to survive and, you know, procreate in its weird convoluted way. You also have the fact that when you think about something like this versus something like Star Wars, this story is much more contained. You know, there's nine people total in this cast pretty much and one is the alien and another is mother's voice. So you don't have all of these characters and storylines that you need to keep track of in the same way you do with Star Wars, which is very expansive as all three of us know. And even though the idea of an alien life form is a big concept, the fact that it's taking place mostly on this one ship just makes it feel like you're in these characters' space a lot more than something like Star Wars. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do have to take issue with what you said. It's, it's, it is 10, uh, if you include Jonesy the cat, who was a very important character in this film. It's one of two survivors. I'm so sorry Jonesy. to Jonesy the cat. Letterboxd did not credit them. <laughs> um, but no, you're right. And that's what I, I, as I mentioned at the top of this, like the atmosphere is so important. And watching the director's cut this time, which I don't, I don't generally watch. I've seen it, I think, maybe once before. I usually watch the theatrical edition. They take a lot of that out in the director's cut. And they, they throw in some more stuff, which is like kind of interesting. Um, they pare down some scenes in, in order to make room for some more. But it takes out a lot of the, the slow panning, establishing shots through hallways. And I think so much of that is more important to the overall story than one sort of interesting scene towards the end where Dallas and Brett get torched as they're being transformed into eggs, which is sort of uh, decanonized later on anyway. It was interesting to, to watch this take again after so long, because you, you do after you've seen the movie so many times, like you notice like that's a new shot. <laughs> it's not that new. I mean, the, that cut came out in 2003. But um, yeah, you, you pick those things up. And I, I think the pacing of the director's cut is a lot uh, quicker. It's like harder cuts, shorter scenes. If I were to recommend anybody who's who's listening to this and, and somehow hasn't seen Alien, I would say start with the theatrical edition. It's probably the better viewing experience. Which is so weird to to think about like what you're describing. Like if you if you bleeped out 
what you were calling each of them. Like you would think the director's cut would be the more gratuitous shots and longer things and more exposition or whatever, establishing things and that the theatrical cut would have more action. I'm thinking about Blade Runner, you know, like more, more audience connection things. But yeah, I mean, the director's cut, I feel like is so much more watchable and predictable, but like you said, yeah, the, the theatrical is, it almost is like the way to, to watch it. Well, yeah, and, and he, Ridley Scott will even tell you as much. Um, I mean, he he's very content with the original cut that came out in theaters. There was very little that he wanted to change. And most of the changes that you that are actually cataloged for the director's cut are like adding stars behind the ship as it moves through fa- space because it's just something they weren't able to do at the time. So what is the director's cut? So the director's cut was mostly made for the quadrilogy box set. When they got the idea of putting all the movies together into a box set initially for DVD, it was later released on Blu-ray, they asked to get new cuts together as sort of a selling point. And he did it. And he likes the he likes the director's cut. But for, you know, for all the reasons I already explained, I, I, he has said on a few occasions that the theatrical theatrical cut is the the version that he he prefers. That's great. So the director's cut, though, is like a gun to his head kind of deal. I mean, more or less. I think it was fun for him to get back into the space and play around for a little bit. He made like conscious choices. It's not like he threw everything back in. Uh, I believe the scene with uh, with Kane or sorry, with uh, Brett and Dallas at the end where they're they're turning into eggs. I think that's actually longer. Uh, he didn't put the entire thing in there. He just put a little bit of it in there to, to add a little spice. Having both options gives you, you know, a choice. But yeah, at the end of the day, and it's not preferred. It's just marketed as the director's cut. I don't think he would call it that. Very interesting and very, very good knowledge. And I, I'm glad you're here, Jacob, for this reason. <laughs> yeah, I have the 40th anniversary edition and he pops up on the screen before the director's cut and really just says that it's pretty minor changes. He was just like, I just wanted to, you know, do a few things here and there because the more you watch it, the more you, you know, think about things you wish you would have done or something like that, which I imagine is like you said, Jake, the stars in the background and that sort of stuff that they just couldn't do at the time. But even given the time period for this, it holds up really well. And I think a lot of that has to do with how much detail went into these set pieces and everything and practical effects, of course. Yeah, I agree. Sort of a last note on the idea of the director's cut. Like, I I would like to see maybe a fan cut of the theatrical edition with the additional pieces added in. Like when he did the director's cut, he made a very conscious decision not to extend the runtime of the movie. And in doing that, it's basically the same. Like there's maybe a minute difference um, in the full runtime of the movie. I would love to see that that full cut just because what was lost in the director's cut was that sort of atmospheric stuff. But non- nothing that got added back in was really bad. Like there, there wasn't anything in it that's like, this offends me in any way. Just a note, if Jeb Willens is listening to this by chance yeah the the sets are incredible aren't they like even just those first couple shots before the crew wakes up like your first introduction to a character in the movie is the ship you know the ship really is its own character uh, and that's even before mother gets involved like it's all very worn and and lived in and i love the choices that were made as you're there's one shot i i absolutely love and i think it every time i watch the movie it's that scene where um you know we're coming up on the door that goes into like the sleeping chamber and that could have just been a door and the door could have just opened, but they added, they added the little, uh, like the, the jackets hanging there just outside the door. And that adds so much because when that door whooshes open, 
the wind moves them around. And it's such a, it's a minor thing, but it, it, it takes it from something that's very mechanical, just like a door opening up and then you see the, into this new space into something that's much more alive and, and, you know, fluid and moving. And yeah, I just think about that shot all the time. Like that's the kind of consideration that went into this movie. And that, I think they did a much better job in this than even you know, Star Wars. Star Wars had incredible sets, but this really went all in. I mean, it's a whole aesthetic, you know, it's instantly recognizable now in science fiction when you're when you see somebody trying to ape it, both like the human uh, ships and even like the the Geiger influenced um, alien uh, like or I guess engineer ships that you sort of see like, I mean, I don't know about if if you guys wanted to waste your time as I did, but I watched The Tomorrow War um, recently, that Amazon Prime film with uh, Chris Pratt. Um, and I just, you know, it was that, that was a mishmash of like 7,000 different sci-fi films as it were, but like they definitely stepped on some alien feet, um, in terms of like set design and stuff like that towards the latter end of the film. And it just, I mean, when, when you see a movie like this and see set design like this is so prevalent in, in the culture, I guess, like in science fiction in general, then you know that they slam dunked it. Like I feel like somebody who didn't know the context seeing this would be really bored by the some of the set design. But if you know that this is where it all started, you know, then I think you you have a much better appreciation for it because the colors are so muted. The text is boring. It doesn't pop like modern GUIs. You know, it's like it's just like I hate to say it, but it's boring. But it is. But it's exactly what things would have looked like. You know, back then, it's what the future people envision the future to be. It's it's so incredible and and so well considered. Like if you if you look at the hallways, I think one of the standout features of the alien Nostromo sort of hallway are like uh, like the padded padded sides. Mm-hmm. I was thinking that you see that in a, in a ton of other movies because of this movie. And like obviously that makes sense because if there's any I don't know like space turbulence, like you don't want to just hit a steel cage. And <laughs> so like the engineers have to work in that sort of environment downstairs, but the people upstairs maybe don't have to. There's something called the semiotic standard that was created by Ron Cobb for this movie. And it's probably it's probably in my top five favorite pieces of art. And it's it's crazy to say that because it's it's just a, a, a graph of icons, basically. But you see these icons scattered throughout the movie and you don't you don't notice them unless you know about this set of signage that was designed specifically for the movie and you start looking for it. And when you look at these pieces, it's like, okay, like there's a, there's an icon that has a cup that indicates where the cups are stored, you know, and here's a sign for medical and here's a sign for the airlock. Here's a sign for the pressurized door. And within this set of icons is a language of its own. And Every icon relates to the next icon in some way. You know, if it if it's surrounded by uh, a red outline, that means that it's pressurized. And so every subsequent icon that is within a pressurized space will have that red outline. And so if you see a sign for something that doesn't have that red outline, don't go in there because <laughs> you're you're going to go floating and, and get really cold really fast. And I'll, I'll share a link in the show notes, but it's just it's so incredible. And I, I can't like I can't imagine how that made it into the movie you know like that's a thing that somebody designs they're like okay yeah we'll toss a couple of these in here wherever because they're cool little futuristic like retro futuristic icons but if you look in the movie for all of these things they're exactly where they need to be and that that level of detail just blows my mind anybody who tries to replicate 
the sort of alien uh, set aesthetic never quite hits the mark because they don't get that deep. They're like, yeah, this looks this looks like what we want. They go for surface level when they're trying to imitate it, and they don't understand that like there needs to be meaning behind every choice, every design, every curve, every bulkhead, like every door handle. Like there's a reason why it's that way. Somebody thought about it, and I think that's the big part that the patches on all of their there. uniforms, even you know, like yeah. like okay, those look really cool. The font, the font, sure. that you love. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's in the next movie, but <laughs> okay. But yeah, like I mean, the, the patches in these movies have have meaning. The the Wayland Yutani wings have meaning. Um, it's not just like a, a sort of American looking uh, patch that you see. It's like it's a tricentennial patch because this movie takes place around the tricentennial. Like everything is is completely considered. And yeah, it just blows my mind. the The design of Alien will always fascinate me. And there are blogs that are dedicated to sort of the design and um, typography in science fiction and. They all love Alien for that reason. There's, It's really the pinnacle. Yeah, and I love, even though they all have uniforms, you still have wardrobe choices that have been made for each of the characters, like, you know, Brett's Hawaiian shirts. <laughs> they just stand out so much in this otherwise kind of drab setting, and it gives, you know, just a little personality to the characters, too, with these subtle wardrobe choices, because, you know... It's not like you look at this crew and they all have on the same exact jumpsuit. Sure, they have their uniforms, but for the most part, they're not wearing them the entire time. Yeah. And if they are, it's like super stylized, right? Like yeah. Ellen Ripley has it open and she's looking like very tough. The person that's the most buttoned up is, you know, of course, the android. Uh, but we think for most of the movie that it's just because he's a, a the science officer. He's the doctor. So he's supposed to wear his little his polo shirt and tuck it in and everything. Yeah, it gives everybody a ton of personality. Yeah, I will say I did not remotely see that Ash twist coming at all the first time I watched it. It's pretty cool. I think a lot of people just skip past the the milk coming out of his head. <laughs> yes. It's not really explained um, <laughs> in the first movie at all. And you know, I think a lot of people would probably just ignore it until the end when he comes to pieces and <laughs> they're trying to stick him to the table so he can come back alive for his last refrain but yeah it's a it's a cool twist another great piece of set design from that that part of the movie was like you know the sleeping cubbies or whatever like the hangout cubbies <laughs> and all of their uh salacious decorations yeah what do you guys think of the choice to make the alien black to kind of just blend in with the shadows in the background instead of you know the typical like big green alien that or little green alien that is kind of the stereotype well the initial drafts for alien it was that it was basically like a tentacled monster it looked very goofy uh <laughs> it would not have made the same movie that it does today it's like it's thanks to you know hr giger and his design and and his work that really brought us the the alien that we have and everything that he designed was black so it was going to be black <laughs> no matter what because that's the the format that he works in, but it does work really well, especially at the very end of the movie when they're in the escape ship and she, he's like folded in Deanna as somebody who just saw this basically for the first time. Did you spot the alien tucked into the wall before, you know, the reveal? I don't think so because the way they designed both the escape pod, if you will, or escape ship and the main ship you had a ton of things running along the walls. 
So to me, when I was watching it for the first time, I wasn't really looking for something else to be there because the the design of the alien just blended in so well with how the ship was designed. Yeah, I love that. Like the, they made the decision to, you know, it, it's kind of folded up into this this little cubby area above one of the computers that she's messing with. But there are also these like insulated pipes and their coverings are the, almost the same exact thickness and texture as the alien's head. And they're, you know, they're like these long tube looking things. So you just think that it's an extension of those in some way. And that reveals really cool. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you know something's coming in that moment, but you're not quite sure what it is, and you're definitely not expecting it to be like a, a, a camouflaged alien. Like you're waiting for it to burst through the door or something like that. It's it's definitely an unease that you're already experiencing, but it, they definitely pulled it off in such a, an amazing way. I think when I first saw the movie, I thought the the twist was going to be with the cat because you know she comes back like the the thing we saw in the theatrical edition is the alien. Uh, the xenomorph like looks at the cat through the cage and and that's it in the director's cut he swats it which is is mean but that's it and then we don't see the cat again until she picks up the container and then runs the rest of the way to to the ship like she doesn't even look into check so i think i thought that there was going to be like another face hugger or something in that, and that was going to be the twist. So it definitely got me when it happened. What I do love about that moment, and I guess maybe this movie in general, because when you when you compare Alien with Aliens, you see like a somewhat different overall behavior of the alien of the Xenomorph, like where when it comes down to um, like how aggressive it is, like the Alien in Aliens. Uh, I'm sorry, the Alien in Alien is. 100% still trying to kill everybody and, and dominate and things like that and, or whatever and just murder the whole crew. But it does so, you know, a little bit stealthier, a little bit less... I mean, it, there's only one of them, so it can't have that pack mentality, I guess, that you see in Aliens. But you, I get the feeling with that reveal, with the alien showing up in the escape vehicle, um, that she could have just stayed there in that thing. And it would it would have just... It was also like... I don't know, Jake, this plays into our stupid conversation we were having yesterday where it's just this alien seems to just have a personality, you know, <laughs> and it, it seems like it just wanted to, it was just there and it wasn't like attacking her. Like, I feel like an alien and aliens, I, mean, I feel like a xenomorph and aliens. I, I can't say singular and plurals <laughs> next to each other or else it's you, you don't know what I'm talking about. But a xenomorph and aliens would just immediately rip. Rip, Ripley's face off, you know, when she's in that room. She walks in the room and just would attack and kill her. Aliens versus Predator. Like, any any of the aliens that you see in subsequent films would do that. But in this one, this alien's just like, he's just trying to be, you know, in that escape. He's like, hey, there's room for me here, you know? Like... <laughs> I, I think that speaks to the tone of Aliens yeah. and how much it differs from Alien. In all of Aliens, it's very much a... It's an action movie, you know? It's an action movie with xenomorphs in it. It it differs totally completely from the first film. And I think that's why I like the third one so much. And I like aliens. I, I think it's fine. I don't think it holds a torch to the first movie. And that's why I like the third one. Cause I think the third one is really a return to form. It just puts everybody in a different place. Instead, they're instead of a ship, they're in a prison. It's still one alien. This alien has like different, you know, physical features because of the way that it was born. But it, it brings that back that vibe and it, brings in the tension and the suspense in ways that aliens just didn't have because it was mostly just a run and gun action thriller 
with xenomorphs on screen. And that's why you can add all these additional xenomorphs and they can run up and, and down the walls. And then there's a, you know, there's a big mother xenomorph that has to get torched at the end. I mean, it's all really cool. It adds a lot to the universe, but um, they're completely different. And so, yeah, in this first one, the xenomorph is just kind of like, it's it's off on its own. And it, it adds that the tension and the suspense that I like so much and which makes the, the video game that you won't play, Mike, super good. <laughs> I can't play the game. Listen, I just played... Um this is a video game wreck for both of you probably, but like this game called Prey came out in like 2017, not the 2006 version, um, which has nothing to do with this, but there's a game that came out in Prey, Jake, that I think you would love. It's very alien inspired um, in terms of like aesthetic and uh, the whole, you know, idea of it, uh, isolation and things like that. But I can't play Alien Isolation. I am <laughs> too scared. I can't play Dead Space. Like I, I wouldn't have played Prey if I knew what it was going to be. There's just this the singularity of the alien in in, isol- in alien isolation the game and this is just so powerful. <laughs> yeah, because it's always there. Whether or not you see it on screen, it's always there. And actually, if if I were to remove one thing from the director's cut, like the one thing that they added that I really didn't like was the shot of the alien hanging from the chains right before it got Brett in the theatrical edition. He's standing under the water. That's one mystery in Alien that I have not solved. It's like, where's that water coming from? And why is he letting, <laughs> letting it drip all over his face like it's rain? Um, it's kind of a, a nice poetic moment. But then you hear you hear like the slow clinking of chains and everything. And you you kind of see it dropping behind him eventually. And then we, you see the, the shot of the cat who gets like tense. And then you hear Brett scream. And that's how it goes in the theatrical edition. It leaves a lot to the imagination. But in the director's cut, there is a there is a full shot of the xenomorph just hanging upside down on one of the chains, swaying back and forth, and I really don't like that. <laughs> Aren't they aware of it at one in that scene? Yeah, they're I, aware. They're trying to find it, but they're looking for the little guy. They're looking oh, but for I, the little. But I, yeah, that's what I mean. I thought one of them tracks what what the what they show you, and they're like trying to get around it or something, or like I. I I mean, you watched it so recently, so you probably. Well, what know they're trying to do is they they're going to find the thing that came out of Kane and they're expecting just the little guy from the end of Spaceballs, but they find the cat instead and they don't catch it when they find it. So then Kane has to go catch the cat. So it doesn't pop up again on the, the little, you know, motion meter that they're using. And in doing so the xenomorph, the fully grown xenomorph then finds him because the thing can grow to the size of seven feet in a matter of an hour. So crazy. I love that. It's it's similar, I feel like, in a lot of ways to The Thing, which came out three years later. Um, not in design or anything like that, but in the insidiousness of of the creature and what it can do and the, the paranoia you'll feel when you're trying to get away from it or guess where it's going to be. It's just like those are two amazing sci-fi films, you know, that came out in the matter within the same five, within five years, you know. Just a really great. The Thing was uh, John Carpenter, wasn't it? Yes. So fun tie-in with Alien is uh, John Carpenter directed a movie called Dark Star that came out in like 74. Um, And it was co-written with Dan O'Bannon, who wrote Alien. So they were writing partners before uh, O'Bannon split off and made Alien. Wow. Hmm. Fun fact. It's good stuff. I get all my knowledge from the J.W. Rinsler book, The Making of Alien, which is absolutely incredible. I just got a copy of that and... 
it has way more words than I thought it did in it. So I didn't get a chance to <laughs> read it oh. before this, but I did flip through it. And I love that they include like the storyboards and stuff and yeah. even pieces of the script. So you have like the drafts and then you have like final scenes put in there. So yeah, I think anyone who's a fan of this movie should probably pick that up. And I tend to do recommendations at the end of these episodes. So maybe Jake, that can be yours at the end. But is there anything else you guys want to touch on story wise? Because I do feel like this is a really simple concept, where you have these people basically going into someone else's quote unquote house, and then the alien doesn't like it and decides to kill them all. In a way. Yeah. I mean, I, I think they kind of knew what they were getting into with the story. I feel like because of the engineer and like going down, like and finding the eggs and everything, like there's so many questions raised, but if you isolate it to just what happens in the Nostromo, yeah, it's super, super that very simple. And it just like, you know, thing gets loose on one. I mean, you, it's not technically not one set, but it is one set piece sort of like, you know, it's not like Star Wars where you have like four different planets per movie or whatever that you're putting everybody onto, but you are, you know, in this one space. It's like a movie taking place in a large mansion or something like that, you know, uh, but this happens to be a spaceship. But everything that comes before it begs so many questions. So it's such a great combination of simplicity and like, holy crap, what are they trying to say? You know, what is the, what is the, this giant creature what was what was the name space jockey that was the name for it until the engineers came around in Prometh. yeah the space jockey was like the big thing right like that's what made it bigger than the film that it was in it's like okay there's there is a story here there's something more to this you've got this big derelict ship and you still don't know what happens to the people on that planet and that's why we get the second movie to answer those questions um, or to start to answer some of those questions that's why it's such a great movie because it works it works well on its own it doesn't need all of the extra stuff but it does that thing that i love so much in science fiction which is it just begs more questions and that's what makes you come back to it over and over because you want answers to that and it's usually why you end up getting seven sequels and a bunch of alien versus predator spinoffs but the fact that it still works without this movie answering those questions, I think speaks a lot to all of the effort they put in everywhere else. You know, the, the cast is really great top to bottom. You have all of those great set designs to look at, the alien and just the whole thing comes together really, really well. And because a lot of this is practical stuff, like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, it holds up extremely well. I didn't know what to expect going into this because as you both know, I've been watching everything Stephen King and some of the 70s and 80s stuff, even some of the 90s stuff just looks absolutely terrible now. And it's just because of the way it was shot. But because this was obviously, you know, bigger budget than a lot of the Stephen King stuff, even if it's really muted and kind of dire in setting, it pulls it off. Yeah. It does. And I, I mean, like you said, the, the cast is incredible, right? I mean, these are all legends. I mean, Sigourney Weaver, it speaks for herself. She's been in everything forever. I mean, anytime that there's some sort of science fiction franchise, they find a way to work her in. And <laughs> yeah. I love that. <laughs> and same thing goes with John Hurt and, and Ian Holm and Henry Dean Stanton and Tom Skerritt. Like, these are just absolutely incredible actors. And the fact that they signed this group of people on for this silly, ridiculous idea of a movie is just 
it's just a wonder. Like <laughs> this movie would not have been as good without the performances that they got. And yeah, I, I think the one thing that doesn't totally hold up for me, practical effects wise, is the alien in that last scene that we talked about when it like crawls out of the space. It, it mm-hmm. definitely looks like a dude just falling out of a hole. <laughs> like, he doesn't t- totally have his feet underneath of him. And it just looks like a guy. I think if they would have shot it from a different angle where you see just like mostly his head and maybe the tail whipping around or something, it would have looked a little better. But what we got is just a dude falling on the ground. <laughs> It is so weird to think about how the weakest part of this movie is probably that is, yeah. is <laughs> the man in the suit. Like, cause that is the most important thing in the movie, arguably, but it still holds such high, it, it's still regarded so well in the pantheon of cinema. Like it's just, it's iconic. Um, and I mean, when you think about what they do with animatronics later on, like three years later with the thing with your, I mean, they were probably already in production for the thing when this came out. Like, so it's it just, but it's crazy to think like, damn, like I like maybe if they had just like three years later, I mean, this the film probably couldn't get fund like the funding that would be required to do this. But like, you know, just a few years later, what they could have done in terms of costuming for this thing. I mean, it's just it's really funny to think about, though, that it's that it's just like everything is perfect about this movie except for the main thing yeah the, the title of the movie and and the actor did a great job i mean that guy is massive right like they did a great mm-hmm. job casting that guy because he's like seven he's like yeah he's about seven feet six foot ten <laughs> that's, that's a massive man and then they put all this like rubber and stuff on top of him they do a great job of making him really imposing and i think they can do that because the alien doesn't have to move much to be scary like the design mm-hmm. of it on its own is so so interesting and so unique that that's what people see. It's less the the popping out of the dark with the jazz hands. Yes, that was going to be, <laughs> I was going to say, we got to talk about that scene. Please do. It's very silly, especially with like the sound. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you turn the sound off, it's even funnier. Like I've never, like, like that scene is so suspenseful when you're watching it. And then it happens and like, yeah, you can have a laugh, but it's, it's genuinely terrifying when it happens. But if you're just like watching on YouTube, I feel like Jake, we were recording a podcast probably like two or three years ago or something like that. And I brought that scene up on YouTube, just like on the corner of my monitor and had it muted and it had it just playing. Mm-hmm. And I was just watching it and, and to just see the alien pop out and do jazz hands without <laughs> any sound, no screaming, no flame, no you know, even ambient noise or sh- struggle. It's just, you're like, wait, what movie are you, are we watching here for? <laughs> yeah. It's really good. I yeah. love it. It was such an amazing time for movies. Like you got star Wars and you've got alien and, you know, close encounters of the third kind came out in 77 as well. And it just, yeah, you've, you've got all of these movies that just came out in quick succession. This jaws. <laughs> what a time for theater, you know, like, especially for genre film. That's, really when stuff kicked off and people give a lot of credit to star Wars, but I think alien gets its due as well. And as much as alien was completely reliant on the success of star Wars, same studios at Fox. I don't think that we would see the the sort of sci-fi that we have today. If star Wars was the only film of that kind that had come out, it's just so influential and amazing. And I love it. Every time I watch it, I never get sick of it. I probably won't watch it for a couple more months, but you know, it's on the rotation. And the fact that they were this good, too. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a well-considered movie. It's not like, it's not Dark Star. If you go back and you watch O'Bannon and Carpenter's Dark Star, that's a goofy movie. It's pretty schlocky. But it also, like, people saw something in it. And as a result of that, like, it launched some pretty important careers because there was, there was a kernel of an idea there. And those ideas got, you know, they got fleshed out. And within the next 
five to six years, we, we got some really incredible pieces of, of media and it's awesome. I don't know. You can, you can identify the influence of alien forever, but I think it's also interesting to go back and, and look at the influence, uh, that was had on the making of alien. Like alien is an amalgamation of a ton of movies that existed, you know, mostly from like the fifties and the sixties. Um, Lots of weird science fiction, um, terror from beyond space, the blob, forbidden planet. Like there are a lot of movies that that influence the making of this film from all aspects, whether, you know, it's the, the design or for the story. You can find the roots to every single piece of this movie somewhere else. It's, you know, it's, it's the old adage where it's like mimicry is the highest form of flattery. And uh, I I highly recommend that book. I I. I don't know if we're getting to the end here, but yeah, I would definitely recommend that that making of book by J.W. Rinsler. And don't feel bad for not finishing it yet, Deanna. I've had it for two years and I'm not even halfway through it because I'm going page by page and I'm making a list on Letterboxd with all of the movies that influenced the making of Alien and adding all of the context. So it's sort of like a, a little making of guide of its own, just a lot shorter. So you can take your time with that book. There's a lot there and it's it's super interesting. Anybody who likes Star Wars history or Lucasfilm history probably has read or owns one of his books. I know that I have at least 12. So <laughs> if, uh... Yeah. And, you know, on the recommendation note, I actually wanted to recommend one of his other books, which is the original trilogy storyboards for Star Wars, because I think when you talk about both Star Wars and Alien, just being able to kind of look at the two and the fact that he did both of those books obviously helps because then you can have a pretty good comparison of the two just because the the books are a little similar as far as showing the storyboards and everything. But yeah, I also want to apologize to you, Jake, because I know I have cost you a bit of money with some of these <laughs> books because every time Amazon has a buy two, get one free sale, I'm always like texting it to you. So we both buy books. <laughs> I will say the past couple of times you sent it to me, there's been nothing left for me to buy. <laughs> I think I'm getting there. I picked up the making of Alien the last time around and I've kind of filled out a lot of the Star Wars stuff. I think I have, you know enough as far as Pixar and Marvel ones go for now, because, you know, reading Stephen King books while I am almost finished has taken up a lot of time. So I unfortunately haven't like really been able to dive into any of those books. But, you know, you both know I have way too many books. I don't know if I'll ever read them all, but I will try. But Mike, do you have anything to recommend? Um, I would recommend the video game Prey. Okay. Um, that's really it. <laughs> You already talked about it earlier, so that's fine. <laughs> At some point, you're going to play Isolation, and you're going to love it. It's incredible. <laughs> I, I, it needs to be a group event. It's like it, I, oh, I feel so very fun. much this way with all scary things. Damn, I put on something scary the other night, and I can't remember what it was. But I, I threw something on and did not think it was going to be as scary as it was. Let me see my letterbox really quickly. I, I put something on and was not prepared for how scary it was going to be. It was very scary, and I was like, oh, ooh, I didn't want. I didn't mean to do this. <laughs> I, I honestly think it might have just been Prey I'm thinking about. It's just like, I, it, it's a game that I never would play on my own. But as soon as I started, I was like, I can't not play it now, even though it was so uncomfortable. Because it's just a game of jump scares. But like things that help me is just being able to laugh and yell when things are happening. And so as long as I'm around other people, like I, I, I'll play a video game with like another person, I think. 
if I could be on like Discord with them playing it. So I can just be like, oh my God. And I can just start nervously laughing while it's scaring the hell out of me. Yeah. So on a ratings note, though, is it safe to say this is a five star for all of us? Yeah, I, I feel that way. This is a rare five stars for me. I'm, I'm very liberal with my, my five stars. Is liberal the right word? It's the wrong. No, conservative. conservative. I'm very you're, conservative, you're conservative with my five stars. I give very few movies. Your political stars. affiliation has now been thrown into question. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, this no. whole time. I've hated Obamacare this entire time. Oh, geez. oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I don't give out five stars a whole lot either. I think before I watched Alien, the last five star rating I gave out might have been Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. That seems right, but I, I don't give out that many of them. <laughs> I gave that one some contemporary yeah, too. Yeah, mine are super rare. And I actually, I, I have sort of like a, a mental task to rewatch through everything that I have given five stars and to knock them down a peg because I'm sure most of them don't deserve it. Yeah, I think the last thing I give five stars to was Portrait of a Lady on Fire, maybe? I have that, have not watched it. It's another one of those things where once I'm finally caught up with Stephen King stuff, I can go watch the 800 other things that I've been waiting to watch. <laughs> hmm. I... I'm very liberal, and I mean that liberally. Um, I'm very liberal with giving like one and two stars. Um, <laughs> I am not very liberal with five stars. I think the last one I gave, yeah, was was definitely Portrait of a... Oh, I gave it to Bo Burnham's Inside. I gave that five stars. That is fantastic. Yeah. Another five star. I don't even... Um, damn, what is it? I'm trying to find your letterbox, and I cannot find it. <laughs> pa Parasite got five stars. Lighthouse got five stars. Oh, okay. Really ones that you'd expect for me to give five stars, I feel like. Um, but you can usually find a, a half-star deduction for anything. Um, but oh, yeah, absolutely. If you if you want to. But like, I, I don't know. It's such a loaded system. Like, it's it, like to be giving ratings and stuff. Like being... Actually, like, I gave Paddington two five stars, so... I take back what wow. I said. That's incredible. That's <laughs> high praise. I just know that like, it, it's just really, I don't know. You, you're factoring in so many things when you give ratings to things. Like it's, it's, yeah. I, I want to, am I factoring in production? Like I wanted to give, I gave, oh my God, I gave Mortal Kombat, like the new one, uh, half a star, I think. But I was like, <laughs> probably the VFX probably deserve like four stars, you know? <laughs> So how do you, how do you, what's the weighting of it? And I just kind of go on gut feeling at the end of it, but it's, yeah, it's really difficult to, uh, to gauge, I think. Yeah. It's one of those things where I feel like I change how I rate movies, depending on what kind of movie I'm watching. Like if it's how a superhero movie versus, me. you know, a, a B rated horror movie or something, you know, there's all sorts of different criteria, but Mike and Jake, thank you so much for joining me to talk about Alien. Jake, thank you for being more of an expert on this movie than I definitely am. <laughs> I could go for another three hours. I don't doubt it. But thanks for having me on for this one. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely have some work cut out for me because I do want to continue watching the Alien movies. I just haven't made it past the first one because, well, that's the only one I bought, first of all, oh, and I don't wow. know what's streaming where. But like I said, I have a few more King things to get through, and then I might be, you know, free to do other things for a bit. But this one was fun to watch. And, you know, I'm glad I watched both cuts, just so I know what each one contains. And theatrical definitely seems to be the way to go. 
Yeah, I, the the cuts definitely uh, vary a little bit more as you go through. I I cannot usually recall which one I prefer off the top of my head for each movie. I usually have to look at like uh, whatever the alien version of Wikipedia is uh, to see what changes were made to remind me which one is which. But um, yeah, mileage may vary on that. Yeah, well, thank you again to both of you. And that's a wrap on 250 episodes. Yay, you did it. You can double my claps up in post. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pitch them we'll down do. too. Will do. <laughs> yeah. Here's a couple extra for flavor. <laughs>